our own ego and our pride to get in the way of living a life of thanksgiving. Instead, Lord, we sometimes think we deserve what we have. Sometimes, Lord, we think we've earned it by our own hands and solely by our effort. And I hope, dear Father, you'll help us understand that's not true. Forgive us of our sins, and whatever those sins might be, no matter how small or how grievous, I pray that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our sins would be washed away. And that we would know, dear God, that you have restored us to a relationship with you that we can't lose and no one can take away. Father, these are troubling times in our land. For you are no longer welcome in a lot of the places that you were once exalted. Maybe in some way that's a good thing, Lord. For we know that when the church is under pressure, that the church excels. We know, dear God, when you're not welcome, oftentimes you make your presence known. And people come to you through that very experience. We know, dear God, that through the times when we have physical or emotional or financial or relationship kind of trauma in our life, that most often you draw us closer to you. And it's a time of real spiritual growth. Lord, none of us volunteer for those times. But the fact remains, as you allow those things to happen as challenges, that you're there for us. And you use them to your own glorious end and to our best interest. Father, if there are those among us, and there always are, who grieve this day, and who are deeply troubled this day by things in their life or the lives of ones they love, I pray that the peace that comes from you that is beyond all human understanding would be with us. That we would have a sense of well-being. And know that you love us. Father, I pray for those who are in military uniform here and all around the world. I pray for all the others who give of themselves so freely in our police departments and our fire departments and a whole variety of other people in uniform like nurses and the doctors who care for us. I pray that you would use their vocation and their experience as an opportunity to bring them closer to you. In all things you work, dear God, even in the mundane things of life. And we thank you for that. And then, Lord, I pray for our church. I thank you for the good work you do here. I thank you that you're teaching us day by day to love you more fully and to love the people who are around us. That you're teaching us, Lord, how to be graceful and not sharp-tongued. And how to be forgiving and not unforgiving. You're teaching us, dear God, as a church, 
how to be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. And Lord, we thank you for that. What a gracious God. What a loving God. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our passage this morning is Deuteronomy, the 31st chapter, and it's verses 1 through 6. Deuteronomy 31, verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to get the one in the pew rack in front of you or somebody share with you, and if they don't share, just reach over and grab it because I'd like you all to follow along. And please, keep your Bibles open and follow verse by verse. This is a moment in life when the Holy Spirit can impact us with the Word of God in a very unique way. And I want you to be availed of every opportunity to experience that. Deuteronomy, the 31st chapter. And we're going to read the first six verses. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help and your blessing. So often we pick up things and read it, and a few minutes later can't comprehend or remember what we read. Make an exception, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Allow these words to be implanted in our minds and warm our hearts, and help us to take them seriously and to live by them. For that was your intention when you had them recorded. So I pray your blessing on us now, Lord, in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You know, one of the modern miracles is that week after week after week, God helps me find an opening for a sermon. It's an absolute miracle. I start out on Monday having not a clue what he's going to bring up, and I trust that as I get into the sermon writing phase, he's going to give me something that we can identify with that pertains to the passage. Here's this week's installment. 1911. A boy is born out in the Midwest, born to very normal kinds of circumstances, grows up, finishes high school. He has some of those Midwestern kind of values about what is right and what is wrong, that a person is supposed to work and be rewarded for what they do, just some good, wholesome American values that happen to grow out of Scripture. He goes to college. Didn't make All-American, but he played some football. He was an athlete. And then, like a lot of young folks in those days particularly, he decided to stay in the region that he was raised in. Took a job as a radio broadcaster. Anybody know where I'm going? A couple of folks do. Took a uh, position as a radio broadcaster and did that for a while. And then God influenced his thinking, as he does with all of us, and he caused him to go out and to audition in Hollywood to become an actor. He was probably not the greatest actor to ever act, but he was in a lot of films, 
And you and I watched him in the 60s in a TV series called Death Valley. He was in our home and in our minds off and on for years and years. And then God did an interesting thing. God influenced his life again, just as he has yours and mine. And he pretty much took him out of acting. And he took an administrative job as the president of the Actors Guild. And for a decade or so, he did that and did it very well. And then General Electric Corporation, and I find this to be interesting because most folks don't know this about him. General Electric Corporation, under the influence of God, because we're in a building block process with this man, employed him to be their spokesperson. And for a decade, he traveled from one GE plant to another across the world. And his job was to bring all the employees together and to dialogue with them in an open dialogue, sometimes several thousand people, to answer their concerns and to share with them the policies of General Electric Corporation. He became known as the great communicator. Guess where he learned that? In that open forum, which most of us wouldn't want any part of. And he learned how to master that. He then went back to California, became governor of that state for two terms. Got to the point in life where he stepped down as governor, and most people in their mid-60s are thinking about what? I mean, that's built into the very fiber of our culture, that when you get to be, they tried to tell us 55. My goodness, I miss that one. And then they did 60. Then 65, well, at 69 years of age, he became president of our country. When most people have stopped trying to do those things. He served the first term. And then he served a second term, unprecedented at his age. And did it well. He had some critics during that period of time, but there are those who knew him best who said he was sharp as a tack for eight years. How do you think he got to be sharp as a tack for eight years? The God who had worked in his life developmentally brought Ronald Reagan to the point that he could lead this country at a very, very important time. And what a role model for all of us. But you know the tragedy? You ask your grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, who Ronald Reagan was, and they have seldom, if ever, heard the name. And you and I need to exalt him because of what God did in his life. What I want to do this morning is I want to take a passage that is really the farewell address by Moses, and I want to show you in the life of Moses and in what Moses said want to show you how God worked in his life to bring him to the point that he brought him. I want you to look at the passage with me. It's Deuteronomy 31, and it's the first six verses. Follow along and listen very carefully because God has this for us. So Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. 
I am no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, You shall not cross this Jordan. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy those nations before you. And you shall dispose them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you, just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them just as he did to Shehan and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will deliver them up before you, and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you look at the first and second verses, you'll see that what Moses is doing is describing the situation that he's in. And it simply says, So Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. Remember who Israel is? This man has just spent 40 years leading them in the wilderness because they were so hard-hearted, because they were so rebellious. He led them at a time in their lives as a nation when they stopped practicing circumcision and, in essence, stopped following God. And yet he faithfully led them with all of that resistance. He now assembles them again because God has told him to. And he says to them, I'm 120 years old. Now, I know some of you may think I am, but I'm not that old. I may feel that way even today, but that's not my chronological age. 120 years old. You know how God worked in Moses' life? He did a wonderful thing. And I want you to parallel this to your life. He's a Hebrew, born into slavery in Egypt. The Pharaoh, you remember, declared that all little Hebrew boys were to be put to death by drowning. Very specific. It was a crime not to do it. The people who helped in the birthing were responsible to take those children out and drown them. You know the story. He wasn't drowned. In fact, he was found providentially by no less than the daughter of the most powerful person in Egypt, the Pharaoh. The daughter took that little Jewish Hebrew child home. And using the influence the daughter has with the daddy, she got to keep him and to raise him. And for 40 years, he grew up as royalty with all the benefits and all the pleasures, but also learning how the system worked, knowing firsthand how it worked. Now, what God is doing, as he's done in my life and yours, is he's giving him a foundation that he's going to draw on later. Next transition in his life. He's walking along one day, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And he gets involved at a compassion for the Hebrew, and he kills the Egyptian. He tries to cover up what is a sin. 
God did not want him to kill. God absolutely wanted him to intervene. But he went too far with that. The end result was God used that sinful behavior as he often uses our sin to get Moses' attention and to get Moses to enter the next 40 years of his life. He flees to Midian. He becomes a simple herdsman. He has a flock and he cares for the flock. And and he and maybe one or two others spend their life for 40 years under the stars, exposed to the weather. None of the royalty, none of the things he had in Egypt. God has got a second building block in his life. And don't you know Moses didn't have a clue where God was taking him toward the end of the 40 years? Moses sees a bush that's burning, absolutely consumed in fire, and yet not burning up, just burning. Wouldn't that get your attention? Particularly if you're out in the wilderness, just you and a flock. He goes over, and as he starts to approach it, you remember what voice from heaven says? This is holy ground. God had come to visit him. Fire, so often in Scripture, is a symbol of God's presence. And God speaks to him and commissions him for the next 40 years. Now he's got 80 years worth of experience, and he goes back to Egypt under command of God to do what? To set God's people free. And he does what he's commanded to do. He stands up against the Egyptian leadership, against the Egyptian army, against all of the complaints of the people of Israel. And he does what God called him to do. Can you hear the lesson in that? When you have adversity, when things don't go well, you do what God wants you to do. And don't you quit doing it. Stay on task and be the man or the woman that God wants you to be. And all will go well for you. So, we know something about this man who's now 120 years old and right at the very end of his life. And he says an interesting thing. He says, my coming and my going has got up and gone. Any of you identify with that? Which one of us is the person we were when we were 20? Some of you haven't reached that age yet. One day you'll understand that. Things change, don't they? Well, if you just read that one phrase, it sounds like Moses has reached a point in life where he's not viable. That is not true. Over in chapter 34, he goes on to say, My sight has not failed. I still have vigor. You understand that. You still have passion. You still get excited about things. Even though you get up and goes, got up and gone. You still care. And you know what you have today that you didn't have before? You have all of these years of building block experiences. And some of us have more to offer today than we've ever had in our whole life because of what God has done in our life. That's meant as an encouragement to myself and to you. Don't take your eyes off of the Lord. 
He is not through with you yet. You understand? And then there's another phrase that must have been a heartbreaking phrase to Moses. God then said, and Moses repeats it to the people of Israel, I'm not going to lead you into the promised land. God has said I may not do that. And I have, as some of you, done research on that phrase, and and I know what is traditionally taught. What is traditionally taught is that God had commissioned both Moses and his brother Aaron to respond to the needs of the people of Israel in the desert where there was no water, and he was to go, Moses, to a rock. Rocks aren't noted for being filled with water. And he was to call out on the name of God, and God would cause water to come from that rock in the midst of all the people of Israel. Scripture teaches that Moses and Aaron called Israel together. They went to that rock, and instead of calling on the name of God, Moses took his staff and hit the rock twice. Now, that doesn't sound like much of an offense, does it? Traditional teaching is that that's what's keeping him out of the promised land, because he was disobedient, because he didn't have faith. I read that passage and I think, my goodness, it's not a faith issue. Because to call out on the name of God in front of a million people and say, would you bring water from that rock, that takes a lot of faith. Well, to take a staff and hit it and expect water to come out, that also takes a lot of faith in God. I think it was something else. I think this godly man, who had so many things over a lifetime that he did that are noteworthy, I think he slipped into a sin that we are tempted to slip into. And he said to Israel, watch me. Bang, bang. And the attention was shifted to him, not to the one who worked the miracles. Folks, there's a danger. And it's a danger for the godliest of people. For those of us who hold ourselves out as being righteous people by the grace of God. And that is that we swipe his glory. That we step in and try to get the glory to come to us and not to him. If your ego gets in the way of you, you need to admit that and come to terms with it. And not use spirituality as a way to get attention for yourself. I think that's what Moses did. And interestingly enough, the consequence for that was he didn't get to go into the promised land. I remember when I was a young believer, I said, well, does that mean he didn't go to heaven? No, that's not true. Because you can read in the gospel accounts of the transfiguration where Jesus, before he suffered and died and was raised, where he went to a mount, and guess who came and visited with him and came from heaven? Elijah and Moses. So there's no question that this is not an eternal punishment. This is a temporal punishment. And it's the same kind of punishments that you and I experience when we deviate from what God wants us to do with our life. Our eternal estate is not at risk. He got that for us. He's not going to lose it. What is at stake is our well-being while we're still on this earth. 
because Christians, just like non-Christians, do experience the wrath of God. So don't try to swipe His glory. Instead, be transparent and let Him get that glory. If you look on down to verses 3 through 5, it talks about what God's going to do. And it's important to notice that God has said to Moses, I'm not going to let you lead the people. And he doesn't immediately mention the apprentice, Joshua, who's been in training in his building block experiences, who one day will become the replacement for Moses. Instead, he simply says, it is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. And what God is saying through Moses is, I want you to understand, this is all about God. It's not about Moses. It's not about Joshua. It's about God. And God is going to go before you. And you know how he symbolized that? He said to the nation of Israel, as they were encamped on the banks of the Jordan River, I want you to take a look at the raging water. I want you to know, humanly speaking, you can't get from here to the promised land. But I want you also to get the Ark of the Covenant, a chest, that had the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments and some other artifacts in them. And that chest represented God being present with his people. That was its symbolic importance. And he said, I want the priest to take that chest, that Ark of the Covenant, hoist it up on your shoulders, and I want them to walk out into that raging water. And I want Israel to stay back so they can see this. But I want Israel to follow them into the raging water. And for the second time recorded in Scripture, God stops the river and lets his people cross, carrying the Ark of the Covenant first. Now, you know the lesson in that? Don't get caught up with how capable we are. Don't think too highly of ourselves. If God doesn't go before us, folks, we're in a mess. And oftentimes we get into the mess before we realize what we've done. And to have peace in this life and to be able to be the people God wants us to be, we need to pray all of the time. We need to be in his word. We need to be in church. We need to do the things that will keep refreshing us spiritually. And when a little voice says to you, don't do those things, say, out of here, Satan. I want no part of you. Get behind me and get back on task. How y'all doing? I think um, I could go for about another hour or two, but I won't. I promise. He says that he's going to destroy the enemies that are in front of the people of Israel. You know what's waiting on them? The city of Jericho. Well fortified, thick walls, probably impenetrable. Not for God. God says, I'm going to destroy your enemies. And he goes and has the people do the strangest thing. Boy, if I were one of the Israelites and someone had come to me and said, now we're going to walk around this city and we're going to blow our trumpets. And after seven days, we're going to blow our trumpets and we're going to cheer and the walls are going to fall down. That's exactly what happened. I think it's a lesson to us that when God says, I'm going to go before you and I'm going to take on your enemies, 
and I'm going to resolve it, it means he's going to do just that. And we often forget he's going to do just that. And then they come to the town of Ai, which is not much of a town, doesn't have a large population, doesn't have a strong military. And when they get there, they realize that someone in their own camp has broken the command of God. God told the people of Israel, don't take that which was in Jericho as your personal loot. Don't tote it back to your tent. And Achan did just that. So they get to this smaller force, and the people of Israel send 3,000, not a large army, against the small town, and they got a whipping by a smaller, less capable force. And what God was doing was teaching them and teaching us a lesson. If you're not walking with me, you're not strong. But if you walk with me and allow me to go before you, I'll take on the biggest enemies that you ever will encounter, and I can manage them. What kind of challenge do you have today? you have a physical challenge? you have a financial challenge? you got something going on in your family that's breaking your heart? What is it that's happening? We all have things in our life that really are seemingly insurmountable challenges. And I hear God saying, wait a minute, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to be there. I'm going to know the name of your challenge. I can call these Amorites even by their names. And I'm going to go before you and I'm going to tear those walls down. I'm going to help you be victorious. I want you to live by faith. I want you to trust me with all that. So what God is doing is he's saying to us, if you have a challenge and you think it's insurmountable, it is not. God is God. And he will go before you. And folks, he will work his will out. And that's in your best interest and in mine. Amen? Verse 6. What are we supposed to do? Well, he says that we're to be strong and courageous. And if you read through Joshua, you'll see that he says the same thing. Joshua is to be strong and courageous, and then Joshua encourages others to be strong and courageous. Memorial Day. I got caught up with that theme while I was working on my sermon, and, and I thought about another person. A boy who was born on a farm which his family did not own in Texas. A boy who grew to be the full size of five foot, five and a half, 120 pounds. He was one of 11 children. His dad deserted his mom and left mom with 11 children. This child took on the responsibility of trying to help raise the family. When he was 16, his mother died. And they dispersed his family, his siblings, all over the countryside. So this man went down at 16 years of age, forged his age, lied about it, and tried to get into the Marine Corps. You see, it was 1942. 
and the Second World War was raging. He got rejected not because of his age, but because of his size. He wanted to be a paratrooper, and he tried to enlist with the paratroopers. Same thing happened. They didn't catch the technicality of his age. He was just too small physically. So begrudgingly, he entered the infantry. He went through his training and went to North Africa, was engaged in battles in North Africa, began to get some rank because of his fearless fighting. And then he took part in the invasion of Italy, came across the Mediterranean, fought in several of the notable battles, was a noteworthy fighter, got more rank, more notoriety. And then he ended up in France in command of a unit. Germans had taken a city. His job was to stop them. They encountered the Germans, and the Germans overpowered them. Six Panzer tanks, 250 infantrymen against one company of Americans. He ordered a retreat. The movie about this doesn't talk much about that. And told his men to fall back. And then, who knows who I'm talking about? Audie Murphy. You've got to be our age to know my examples. He crawls up on top of a vehicle that is burning, and he mans a machine gun, and he neutralizes the approach in advance of the Germans. And then, he and his men drive the Germans out of that town. He is credited with 50 kills, personally. He gets the Medal of Honor. By war's end, Audie Murphy was the most decorated person in the military. We know him more for his movies after the war. I thought about him. And what he, like Ronald Reagan and like Moses, have done is set an example for us of how to be strong and how to be courageous. But folks, it's not enough to be just strong and courageous. If you're not walking in the Spirit, you're missing a key ingredient in really being strong and courageous. And when the challenges come, most of us, for a brief period of time, can stand up against challenges. But we wear down really quick. Have you noticed that? If the challenge goes on for a long period of time, most of us become depleted unless the Holy Spirit is at work in us. And then we become surprisingly resilient. And we can be what Moses said, strong and courageous. I don't know where God is going to take you individually, nor do I know where he's going to take Linda and I. None of us know what tomorrow holds. I mean, I could start getting younger, my hair turning darker, and I could get skinnier starting tomorrow. Bob says that's not going to happen. (laughs) There's still hope, Bob. But none of us know. We don't know what this afternoon holds. But there is something we do know. We know that he loves us. And if you have come to terms 
with the fact that you're a sinner. And if you have called out to God and said, I accept Jesus as my Savior, and I believe He's your Son, and I believe you raised Him from the dead, that exercise of faith ensures two things. It ensures that the Spirit of God will dwell in you and you absolutely can be strong and courageous because He's going to walk with you no matter where you go tomorrow and He's going to go before you. You got that picture? You know the other thing that absolutely ensures? I sure hope over these last 16 plus months that you like me Because, folks, you and I are going to spend a long time together. It ensures our eternal salvation. Amen? Do good, folks. You walk individually with the Lord, and I'll seek to do that. You let Him be the Lord of your life, and things will be good for you. And as they're good for you, they'll be good for the church. I encourage you with all my heart, the next interim and then senior pastor, If you share with them your life like you have with Linda and I, and if you love them like you've loved me and let me love you, it will be well for Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church and for you. You got it? Let's pray. Father, this is your church. You're the one who put it on the hearts of some men and women many years ago to start this church. And you're the one, dear God, who's provided land and built buildings, and you're the one who has established this place of worship. It does not belong to me or to any other human being. It is a place where you are to be exalted and not us. I thank you, dear God, for allowing us together to be a part of that plan. And I thank you for blessing us. And I thank you for our life experience together. I pray your blessing, Father, on my friends, individually and corporately. I pray you would keep them close to you. And I pray that they would not resist the moving of your spirit that they truly might walk anew every day with you. Bless them and keep them in the very precious and yet powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. It's a good thing we did today to come worship, is it not? This is where God's kids are supposed to be. Well done. God bless you and God keep you. May his face truly shine on you. And you reflect that wherever you go, that other people will know you belong to God through Jesus. May you know his peace and his joy today and tomorrow and all the days of your life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit,